I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? I think as a society, we want more variety. We want more choice. We want more weirdness. We don't want to live in a world where there's four or five large tech companies. It'd be great to live in a world where there's a thousand small tech companies. And I think in order to create that, we need to literally create and generate more founders. And I don't think it's that the world is lacking in sufficient IQ or people that would be smart enough or people that would be gritty enough. I think it's that the world is lacking in a way to kind of radicalize people to pursue their passions. Daniel Gross is the founder of Pioneer, a fully remote accelerator that backs brilliant founders from all over the world. Pioneer is changing the way that companies are formed, and Pioneer has already backed more than 100 founders. Daniel's origin story begins in Israel, and when he was 18, he was accepted into Y Combinator, being the youngest founder ever at that time. He founded a company called Q, an AI-powered search engine that was acquired by Apple when he was just 22. Daniel was a previous guest on episode number 124, and if you haven't heard it, go ahead and check that out. So on this episode, Sean and Daniel discuss a wide range of topics from Daniel's decision-making process, his recent marathon in Antarctica, what he's seeing most in the most successful entrepreneurs, and so much more. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand they're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Daniel, so it's been about a year since we last talked, and we're going to get into tech, startups, and what the world 2.0 looks like after COVID-19, but I have to hear about the marathon uh, you recently ran in Antarctica. How was that? I want to know what that experience was like. Sure. Um, thanks again for having me on. I'm uh, delighted to talk. Um, I recently finished um, running yeah, a, a bunch of miles, um, a marathon in Antarctica, um, in all honesty, most of the credit and um, well, fame or infamy uh, goes uh, should go to my friend Kyle Vogt, who uh, who I was pacing. Uh, Kyle was running seven marathons in seven continents and trying to set the record for doing it in 77 hours. Um, he ended up completing the feat in about I think 84 or 85 hours, still shattering the record by quite some bit. And um, uh, I paced him for. Uh, uh, f- a few of those marathons, certainly not all of them. Um, but the first one that we ran was in Antarctica, a very interesting place, quite desolate. Um, I think the best way to envision it is if you've ever been in a desert, you can kind of imagine that. Um, 
just with with the uh, you know with with the conditions you'd expect, um, much colder, snow, wind. Um, we thankfully had pr- pretty nice visibility. Actually, there was a marathon that was run about forty eight hours prior to us, uh, and we were kind of looking at finishing times there, and the fastest finishing time was four hours and change. And you know, for a marathon, usually it's um, well, just uh, slightly under half of that, you know, two hours, 20 minutes for a speedy finish. So if the, you know, top finisher is finishing at four hours, that means conditions are really bad. Um, so we were kind of getting worried ourselves. Figured we'd power through regardless, but um, we had a little bit of wind, but it, it was pretty nice regardless. Um, packed snow, you know, you can kind of think of, of the surface being like a kind of a beach uh, uh, style in, in terms of the impact you get from it. Um, and so that means that, uh, it's actually a little bit easier on your knees, but you have to apply a little bit more force because you're, you're getting less force back from the ground. Um, you're sinking a little bit in each step. Uh, so it takes out, you know, surprising amount of you, but, um, it's just a, a thrilling place to be. And, and, um, you know, running, I find has this interesting effect where it really encodes, um, things into memory. Uh, you know, I find if I'm on vacation and I go run, I really remember the area that I ran in. And, and as a result, I, even though we ran kind of laps around the um, airfield that we landed in, um, I remember it inten- intensely. Is running in that uh, environment much different? Do, do your senses, are, are they impacted differently than, than just a normal run, call it out in San Francisco? Well, I mean, certainly in, it's much colder. And, um, and so, you know, I think if, if an East Coast runner would probably be pretty familiar with just running in the snow and the cold. So, you know, certain parts of you get, get numb. I mean, surprisingly, your chest and torso warm up as long as you keep on moving. But, uh, you know, you, you got to have good gloves uh, to keep the, the fingers uh, warm. And, you know, we wore double, double layer socks um, just, to, just to keep the extremities warm. The actual, you know, aspect of running is not that different. We, for all of the marathons, we ended up running, you know, um, either out and backs or laps uh, near the airport. Uh, and so, you know, you, we're, you, we're kind of just, you know, keeping track of the mileage that we're doing. But other than that, you know, it, it wasn't too distinct. Um, it's at sea level. So, you know, the amount of oxygen you have is, uh, is great. Um, we were just trying to make sure that, you know, we didn't go out uh, too strong. Kyle had another six marathons after Antarctica. Um, and so we were, you know, trying to keep a moderate pace. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, other than that, the uh, the only way you'd know you, you were in Antarctica, I think, is, is um, well, just by the infinite horizon of snow. Uh, and... Um, Again, we caught it on a good day. I mean, I think there are days where there's um, you can you can really experience the um, full scope of nature's wrath uh, in Antarctica, and it's you know um, as I understand it, conditions can get quite tough. Uh, but but for us on a beautiful day, it was um, it was like a windy, uh, snowed in day, maybe on the east coast. How'd that opportunity even come to you? Well, I've known Kyle for quite some time. I was an investor in his company. It's called Cruise. Got acquired by General Motors for about a billion dollars. Building self-driving cars and indeed maybe one of the first to market, um, and I've known him for quite some time um, prior to that. Uh, while he was running his earlier company, which would turn into um, Justin TV, uh, which would turn it, of course, into Switch into Twitch, um, and uh, we've kind of been old friends. And uh, I think he knows I'm up for adventures, in particular running adventures. And so at some point around Christmas, he told me he was going to do this, and um, 
you know, it's, I find it kind of interesting. I don't know why I said yes, but it was very clear to me that I had to do it once the opportunity was available. Yeah, I, that's what I'm curious about, th- those adventures you're going after. And I'm even intrigued. Do you learn new things about yourself after taking on something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy finding me, and I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people, um, I enjoy, you know, finding the limits of, um, my body and my mind. Um, uh, you know, it's, I I think you, you learn maybe a little bit less, you know, something specific about yourself and more, I think you just gain confidence knowing that, you know, you did that really hard thing. And so whatever you're staring at, you could probably, you know, um, get over. Um, and I, I, I that, that's, that's why I started running in the first place. Yeah, I'm wondering even how you assess it. I know for me internally, when I take on one of those challenges, it's almost like a new bar has been raised and set, where now that confidence that I was able to tackle that, you can go on to, to, to more intense, challenging things. So I'm wondering, finding the limits for you, when, when you think about that, that phrase, what comes to mind, both uh, internally in terms of difficulty with your mind and then also physical challenges? Um, well, I mean, I, uh, for, for me, I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm, 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 I'm by no means perfect in this regard. I, I also am very close to, and mostly do this, this sport that I happen to love, which is running. Um, and, you know, and, and, and as you know, once you kind of get into running, um, it's, it's not as hard as it seems, but it's, it does seem to the outside or very crazy. I think when you tell them even, oh, I just, you know, I ran 13 or 14 miles today. Um, you know, to the, to an outsider, that seems very crazy and, and hard, but you know, for me, it's, um, it's, it's not easy, um, but it's a thrill, uh, and it's certainly something I enjoy. So, you know, I, I'm not as good as others about constantly kind of stretching and trying different sports, although I am interested in it. Um, running for me has also a very n- nice efficiency to it. Uh, there's only so much you can do of it. It's, it's, it's quite, um, you know, it takes quite a toll on your body. You could go out and you could bike ride for five hours and be fine. You, you can't really run for five hours. Um, I mean, you can, but y- you know, you're not going to be able to work afterwards um, uh, or run the next day. So for me, it's very nice in the sense that it's very, you know, it's very efficient. Um, I, you know, I'm going to go running at some point later today and, you know, it'll be about 50 minutes of my time, um, but it'll yield dividends greater than 50 minutes in terms of my productivity for the rest of the day. Um, uh, and, and it still kind of stresses my body. Um, there, I don't think there's actually a better way probably just in, in, just in terms of minutes, um, uh, and, and maybe overall longevity benefits. I don't think there's something much better than running. Um, but, but that being said, you know, I, I enjoy within, within that sport, I enjoy trying to find the limits, you know, either trying to get faster or trying just, you know, a, a distance I haven't tried. Um, I, I kind of like the novelty of it. And, uh, uh, and, and, and I think it's quite, I mean, for me, it's very helpful to have something other than work. That's kind of a game I can work on, um, something I can think about, um, and something I can win and maybe lose in, but it's, it's very helpful. You know, work has its ups and downs, not all of which I could control. Um, and it's quite nice to, you know, even during a day that, you know, might be quite intense from a work perspective, have a, have just another different thing to work on. I think other people have, you know, other forms of these outlets, um, you know, one day if I'm lucky enough, maybe I'll have children, maybe that will become that. And, or, 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 you know, sometimes people play video games. I, I kind of get it. It, it. It's nice to be able to escape almost to a different universe. Um, 
Um, and so that's that's really um, maybe another thing that I get out of it. But you know, I, I look, I love challenge, adventure, and and um, I think if I if I had a little bit more more free time, I would think about more creative things to do. Kyle was very inspiring to me in that regard. I mean, he was a fairly busy individual running a very large unit within a very large company, working on one of the most important software hardware projects of the 21st century, arguably. And yet, you know, he thought of this, he made the time, and he actually did it. Um, uh, very, very much kind of, um, you know, made me think, gosh, you know, um, I, I, yeah, I'd love to do some style of uh, particular adventure like that in the future. You know, something at the intersection of uh, running, logistics, uh, software. I should say Kyle actually wrote and open sourced uh, actual software he had to write to do this because, you know, you have the traditional, the quite famous software um, problem called the traveling salesman problem when you ask yourself the question, you know, if I want to run in seven continents in the shortest period of time, uh, you know, given everything you know about, you know, airports and flights, what is the most efficient way to do that? And uh, software actually answered that question. Um, so it was a very, very cool project, truly at the intersection of that man's um, interest. And uh, yeah, maybe one day I'll grow up and I'll do something similar. Do you have anything in mind in terms of what you'd like to, to tackle there? Well, you know, hopefully at some point in, in the far-fetched future when there's a vaccine and this thing is behind us, I do think traveling to kind of interesting new desolate places uh, is is very interesting. Um, you know, so much of our memory as humans is spatial. Um, we remember things based on place. I certainly am, am experiencing now, I don't know if you are, but you know, now that we're all kind of in lockdown and we're not moving around, although the day-to-day -day of my life hasn't changed that much in terms of what I do, I find I remember much less of it just because it's all blurring. Um, you know, I think it turned out that afternoon coffee you were getting, half of the value was the cup of coffee. Half of it was just going to another place and breaking up the day a little bit. Um, and so that's kind of making me yearn for, gosh, it'd be, it'd be great to do some type of travel to, you know, really remote places where you're constantly changing locations all the time. I, I, look, I've, I've stared down at a lot of weird records. And again, it's so funny. I don't even understand why I would go do it. You know, I've, everything from longest time someone's you know, ran on a treadmill uh, to, um, you know, the longest uh, um, uh, set of contiguous marathons to all sorts of weird stuff. And I, yeah, it's, 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 we were kind of kidding to ourselves as we were running the second marathon, which was in Argentina, that we don't, we didn't even really know why we were doing that, um, you know, at, at a deep level, just felt like it had to happen. So, I don't know anything specific yet, um, but I, but I am uh, excited by the thrill of it. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to traverse more of Antarctica. Uh, I think that that continent, not only is it the only continent without coronavirus, but um, it's I mean it's very underrated and it's a very interesting place. Um, uh, there are fractions of Antarctica that are unclaimed by any other nation and yet larger than you know California State. Um, and so that's, that's a pretty fascinating thing when you think about it. I mean, there's land that is larger than countries uh, that no one's really claiming. And, you know, the, the, the eye of the, um, of, of, of the world is really towards, you know, Mars, maybe rightfully so. It's very interesting. But here, right, right here on Earth, we have a lot of undiscovered stuff. Um, you know, the other thing that I'm, I'm super fascinated by is the ocean just the underwater life, super undiscovered. And there are all sorts of interesting treasures underwater that we used to have a culture of going after, um, you know, people looking for sunken booty and ships. Uh, 
And, you know, that all kind of faded at some point, but, um, you know, uh, th there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Jeff Bezos um, uh, plucked out of the water Apollo 11's original Saturn V engine. And that now sits somewhere in his one of his homes. I mean, that's incredible. What, what a piece of art uh, to have. Um, and there's plenty more of that interesting stuff, you know, at the, at the bottom of the ocean. Um, we don't really know how to traverse it, but that's another form of adventure that I think would be incredibly interesting to, uh, to go and explore. Yeah, interesting people doing interesting things, and you're certainly at the intersection of that. And you're bringing up some of these things that, that you're intrigued by, that your curiosity is being piqued with. What are those moments like when your curiosity is piqued, when you talk about underwater discoveries and things like that? What are next steps for you when you get intrigued by something? Yeah, um, it's funny. I, um, I'm smiling because I think um, the broader topic of motivation and what pulls one in different directions is very interesting. And um, it's something I, well, I mean, collectively, the whole team at Pioneer spent a huge amount of time thinking on because let's imagine we could crack this. Let's imagine I could tell you, I kind of know, uh, I, I've, we've reverse engineered motivation and here's like a script we can write where we can kind of motivate anyone to do anything. Boy, I mean, that would be incredible. We could fix so much of the world problems. I think we could create many more startups as a result. Like my dream for Pioneer isn't it for it to be a startup accelerator. It is for it to be a startup generator to create more companies that wouldn't have been possible before. And I think the way we would go about doing that is we would kind of buy into the assumption uh, that there are thousands of amazing companies, you know, your next Stripe, Facebook, Pinterest, uh, Snapchat, whatever, that are, you know, uh, GitHub repos with 10 commits in them where the person then gave up because they lost motivation. Um, and, uh, and, and I understand it. And I think everyone can understand this, right? You, you, working on anything, there's a kind of an ebb and flow to it. And I feel like the world broadly speaking, all of the jobs in the world could be separated into maybe one of two buckets. The first we could kind of think of as, um, uh, you know, clear, we could kind of call them clear jobs where it's very clear what to do next. So this would be anything from working in the military to working in Starbucks. Um, it's very clear how to advance in the career. It's very clear what the next mission is. It's very clear what the, you know, the next thing to do. Working in a large company is the same. You have a boss, the boss gives you work, you do the work, the boss gives you a raise. Great. But then there are opaque jobs and opaque jobs, unlike clear jobs, it's not really clear what to do next. It's not really clear where the motivation should come from. It's not really clear what success would look like. Um, you know, we can kind of think of an opaque job as the job of someone working as an early stage founder. I actually think investors are somewhat similar. Um, it's not always clear what to invest in, what to do. Um, and in an opaque job, uh, and you know, I feel like there are a lot of casualties of motivation where you, you kind of are working on something and because there's no external validation, you just stop doing it for, you know, at some point. And so motivation comes in these, you know, fits and starts and, and, and it's very unclear to anyone really what, what drives it, what causes it. And, and the role of pioneer is at least for the world of kind of early stage startup and company building to try to take people that have otherwise would have given up and to propel them into this treadmill of productivity to get them going um, and, and to get them to work on it a little bit more harder. Um, you know, for every time, you know, when I was 18 years old, for every time I, I thought of applying to Y Combinator or um, trying to, you know, uh, email someone at Sequoia for money, um, there may be 20 times where I just kind of self-edited out of that. Well, you know, doesn't seem like a real thing. Why bother? Move on. Uh, and then at some point I kind of did it. 
And, you know, to our earlier conversation, I experienced a lot of parallels here with running where I, I didn't take running seriously for a very long time. And then I accidentally signed up for a marathon. I don't know, maybe a half a decade or longer ago. And then I accidentally told people I signed up for a marathon and one thing leads to the next and suddenly I'm running intervals in a track. So, uh, you know, th there are all these ways to kind of propel yourself or force yourself to do things. And we want to instrument that in software in, in what Pioneer does. And so we have this whole mechanic around, you know, a leaderboard and points and all of that gamification is really in service of getting people to go the extra mile for themselves, really. It's very much how like the, the, the whole Peloton platform, you know, the bike, the treadmill they have um, gets people to work out a little bit more. Um, and, um, and so, you know, for me, the whole, you know, story around curiosity and, and motivation, it really is um, the uh, dissecting that and, and solving that and breaking that apart uh, is, um, is I think the key to creating kind of more startups in the world, which I should mention is something we want. Like, I think as a society, we want more variety. We want more choice. We want more weirdness. We don't want to live in a world where there's four or five large tech companies. It'd be great to live in a world where there's a thousand small tech companies. Um, and I think in order to create that, we need to literally create and generate more founders. And I don't think it's that the world is lacking sufficient IQ or people that would be smart enough or people that would be gritty enough. I think it's that the world is lacking in a way to kind of radicalize people to pursue their passions. And that's the purpose of Pioneer. Yeah, that's just such an interesting hypothesis. It, it makes me even think back. Uh, I grew up playing sports, so I, I had a sports background. And I'm even just thinking about some of those little motivations, those little nudges that a certain coach maybe gave me at one of those inflection points. And that little bit of motivation just helped me go so much further along my own progress. And and you're talking about doing this in, in terms of companies and founders. And, and you're assessing hundreds, if not thousands of founders per year. And I'm wondering, do you believe that you really can dissect what motivates them and what, what that curiosity looks like? It's interesting because I think you kind of answered the question with your earlier point. So, you know, when the coach, when, when, when you're running uh, or doing any sport and, and if you have the right psychology of kind of, uh, you know, kind of an insecure overachiever, what's going to happen is you are going to be your largest critic and your largest kind of enemy, the voice inside your head, you know, that says, this wasn't good enough. Uh, you know, I bet this was bad. You should try harder. Uh, and, and so you tend to push yourself, um, you know, to, to, um, to extremes pretty quickly. And it's just when you were kind of going to give up on the whole thing, because why bother? And maybe, you know, you know, everything you do is just not great enough where the coach says that was a great set. Um, and that really changes things inside you. And we see this kind of on the internet. I'm very tickled by it. You know, someone will get just a like on Twitter or Facebook from someone they admire. And that will change them for, for the day, maybe the week. Uh, and so, you know, I think as humans, I think it's actually fairly healthy that we look for a sense of um, accomplishment from other humans. I mean, if, if we didn't have that, we would all off be doing crazy things, maybe bad things. Um, I, th I think in many ways, that's, that's kind of what morality is, the sense that if I did this, other humans would perceive it badly. So I shouldn't do that. And that kind of makes sense at, at a global scale. Now, like everything taken to an extreme, I think it's bad. You know, you don't want to be entirely driven um, by what other people think, because I think then, then you get stuck in the cycle of conventionalism. But having the, you know, the right people 
um, be ones that kind of you perform for and you admire, um, I think is, is tr- both, you know, true and important. And so what I think we can do um, is I think we can en- try to engineer mechanics where, you know, one of two things happens. Either you get a sense of approval from like, say, a coach that what you're doing is great and you should move on and you should take that a little bit more seriously. Uh, and, you know, and that for us can be the, you know, pioneers and opaque thing could be one of our experts. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is just this this element of the, the other thing that's very pleasant in sports is, you know, kind of when you're playing and you know where you rank and you're, you're kind of not winning all the time, nor are you losing all the time. Uh, and you get a sense of how you're improving. And that's one of the in one of the ways where I think, you know, Pioneer's kind of leaderboard mechanic is quite effective. You, you constantly get a sense kind of of where you are and how you're improving. And some people love competing against others. Other people really love just competing against themselves and just, you know, everyone wants to kind of get better every day. Um, and so I think with those kind of two mechanics, you know, nudges from kind of coaches to your point, as well as a constant sense of improvement, we can, um, you know, get people to trip into building their, their kind of next great thing. And let's not forget, this is not too far-fetched of a claim, because if we look a little bit closer at the earlier versions of, say, Facebook, where you can have, um, you can watch interviews with Mark Zuckerberg from 2005, where, you know, he very much um, decries the platform ever growing beyond, you know, Harvard, just a small Harvard photo directory. Um, or, I mean, in all honesty, even Elon Musk, where, you know, SpaceX was set up as basically a giant photo op on, on Mars. That was the plan. Let's buy some Russian rockets, launch a bunch of them onto Mars, get it to take a photo of what life is like on Mars, and then shut down the company. Um, you know, lo and behold, Facebook, of course, t- turns into um, the largest, not even social network, but maybe, you know, um, you kind of, kind of uh, human directory service in the world. And SpaceX is the largest private space company, um, you know, far more successful than many nation states. Um, they were not started in that way. They were started as fairly dumb, simple projects. Um, and things really evolve over time. So, so, so if you, if, if, if you inspect closely the, and I, and I get a lot of, um, joy by looking at early versions of, you know, Facebook or Amazon or Google, by the way, Google university project called Backrub for Christ's sake. Um, you, you, you're kind of reminded that um, everything big starts small. And that is, I think, really important to remember because if you, if, you, um, if you believe that, then I think you automatically believe that more small things could, could become big. You bring up another really interesting thread about how some of these gigantic organizations have started small with a simple idea. And I, I know you've kind of seen behind closed doors of some of the world's leaders in terms of technology. And I would love to know what it's like behind those doors. Are they just like everyone else? Because I think young entrepreneurs or people interested in starting a company, they look up to a Bezos and, and they think he's just operating at such a different level. And, and that might be a bad example because he might be. But I'm wondering, the majority of people, are, are there enough people who can emulate them to some degree with enough time and experience? Yeah. I mean, for me... I, 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 I grew up um, adoring Apple, just adoring it. Um, I, I didn't have all the Apple products, but I certainly knew about every single one of them. And uh, I was very much, uh, I, 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 I thought myself um, a disciple of Steve Jobs, you know, watching 
there's, there was a YouTube channel, I think it shut down, called Every Steve Jobs Video. Uh, and this is back in the day where you could like watch the entirety of YouTube, but I think I watched <laughs> every video on Every Steve Jobs Video. Um, and never properly met the man. My only run-in with him was a literal run-in where he almost ran me over once. Um, but um, when once we got acquired by Apple, um, Steve was had unfortunately already passed, but I was very curious to meet the rest of the leadership of, at the time, the world's largest company and, and really get a sense for, you know, for what these uh, inhuman gods were like. And of course you go and you meet folks and, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like meeting rock stars or people you grew up admiring, but you meet them and you, you constantly have the same reflection, which is, gosh, they're human. They're human just like me. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to um, demean them. They're much smarter than me. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is a real intelligence to some of Apple's lead leadership is the main thing I can, I can speak about um, just at the, at the large, you know, uh, Fortune 50 list. Having spent a lot of time with those guys, I mean, every Apple leader themselves could, could, could and is running actually a Fortune 50 company in terms of revenue. Um, they're very smart but they're very human too. Uh, and, you know, they have their, you know, their eccentricities and their flaws. Um, and it's a real reminder that, that, you know, you're not that different from them. For me, one of the biggest moments in, in my life where I kind of realized I could do it is I remember when I came out here, um, Mark Zuckerberg came to give a talk. And in all honesty, you know, at the time Facebook was, you know, weirdly even more hyped than it is now. Um, it was kind of before, it was, it was on its ascendancy in the S-curve. But just seeing him talk and, and seeing him, you know, in the flesh made me realize, well, you know, he's human, I'm human, so I'm sure I can figure something out. And, you know, maybe it won't become Facebook, but it'll be something. Um, and I think that's the thing for people to realize is you see all of these people through screens and you see them in their fully manicured form. You know, don't forget, when you watch someone like, even Mark Zuckerberg or even Elon, you know, both who are, you know, certainly no Churchills in terms of their oration ability. These are people that have gone through hours of media training, hours of staring at themselves on video and just trying to figure out how to perfect, how to improve. And, you know, maybe they don't give a damn, but certainly they have media teams just working on polishing the image over and over and over. Um, and, and they're meant to project force, power, and pride. Um, uh, it's, it's obviously in their best interest to do that, given where they are. But you know, but behind that is someone who you know is very similar, if not identical, to any kind of early stage founder. So, look, there is something, something smart, unique. Just a sec. Oh wow, Siri just turned on on my computer. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, um, no there is something smart and, and, and unique about those people. Um, but I, you know, I don't think it's a one in a million thing. Uh, yeah. I think it's a one in a thousand thing. I'm somewhat interested how you view that now when you have young entrepreneurs, young founders come up to you who are viewing you in that light as well. I mean, here you came from another country, got acquired for tens of millions, uh, are, are building some incredible things out there in the world. So how do you think about that now since you're still so close to that? when you have young people reach out to you? Um, yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I, I try to make my, uh, set up my time in the kind of this barbelled approach where I'm very, you know, very interested in meeting people that have been underrated by the world, you know, outsiders, uh, people that, um, you know, feel like they, they, they don't belong wherever they are, but they also aren't, you know, quite, um, uh, you know, at, at, at their peak moment of fame here in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, and then the other extreme, I try to spend a lot of time with kind of existing close friends. Um, um, and, you know, it's important for me to, you know, to communicate, you know, to everyone that I meet, that's kind of just getting started that, uh, um, you know, that they can do it. I mean, it's the, that's the biggest message I try to deliver to people. It's very interesting to think though, and to, and to wonder, you know, at the end of the day, um, a lot of people ask me the following question, you know, when they reach out, it's like, what, so what will I learn by coming out to say Silicon Valley um, that I, you know, that I can't learn online or what is it at the end of the day that, you know, investors or places like Y Combinator are teaching people? Um, and, and, you know, the, the funny thing is a lot of people think, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to be learning if like a, like some secret rule, um, you know, and formula that's really kept here. Like the, you know, it's, it's like the Coke formula or something. Um, the reality of it is, and the thing I try to convey pe to people when I meet them is that the main thing of Silicon Valley, um, like the big idea here is that in certain properties in the world, the internet being one of those worlds, you can grow much faster than you anticipate. That is the big thing people don't realize. You know, they're, they're sending 10 emails a week, not 100,000 emails a week. They're trying to grow revenue $1,000 a month, not a million dollars a month. And, and people kind of forget the math of CAGR, of the compounding annual growth rate or weekly growth rate. You know, 5% week over week starts to add up really quickly. I highly would encourage everyone, I mean, I, you know, I guess now with the coronavirus, we're a little bit more aware of what 33% every week means, but you can open a spreadsheet and you can just do the math of 5% week over week and put in any number that you care about, the number of users you have, um, the number of revenue you're chasing, and and things start stacking in this weird way where it's, I mean, it's again, it's very kind of not intuitive to the human mind. Um, and it's really teaching that to people. It's teaching to people that you can get big and you can grow big that I think is the main lesson of Silicon Valley. You can kind of think of, um, here's a fun analogy, like the world basically has all of these computers that could do amazing things, but they've all been underclocked by the manufacturer. And, and what Silicon Valley really tries to do is, I don't know if it's overclocking or getting them to the correct clock speed, but it is certainly increasing the, the kind of strength and the speed of the processor itself in people. When did you learn that lesson? Was it after coming to Silicon Valley or were you aware of that before? No, I wasn't. I mean, I grew up in Israel and um, I would read articles about TechCrunch about Silicon Valley. And it seemed to me as, um, as, as, uh, as foreign as Middle Earth. I mean, it's obviously a place, it might be fictional, amazing things happening there, you know, Elrond and Gandalf walking around. Um, but certainly not a place I can access. And then I came out here and then I suddenly I was here. And I remember, uh, this, you know, all of these companies, um, some of them would go under over time, but I, uh, you know, I was walking around 
kind of the, the Bay Area and I see the offices of, you know, Foursquare and Gowalla, you know, at the time location-based social networks were all the hype. It's 2009, 2010. And I'm, I felt like I was on a movie set. And, um, uh, and I had no idea. I, think, I had no idea that things could get big. But then, you know, you meet people, you have friends. And then what happens is your friends, occasionally, some of them and their companies, you know, start to do really well. And they start grossing millions of dollars in revenue. And you're looking around and you're staring at your hands and you're staring at their hands. And then you're staring at your hands and you're saying, well, we both have 10 fingers. So obviously I could be doing more. And so there's this interesting um, positive form of competition where it's not that I'm trying to eat away at their success. It's their success is motivating me to, to, to realize I can do much more. So again, so like humans aren't born with this sense that they can start a company that turns into Amazon. And you know what? Statistically, the odds are that it won't happen. But when it does happen to someone, it'll it'll be started by the same person as you, as the person listening to this. Um, and that's a super important lesson. And I didn't, I mean, I certainly didn't know that. And it, and it took me, you know, quite some time to internalize. Um, but it's funny now that I have that, um, I find I, I find there's a certain element of confidence in it uh, that, you know, that I know that I, I'll figure it out and I'll get there. Um, and it's very similar going back to, to how we opened the conversation. Uh, for me, I found it very helpful, you know, many years ago to finish a marathon, my first marathon, because I, I then knew I could do that. Um, and that, you know, that makes running two miles seem like a joke. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think you're born with this. Some people are born with this knowledge. Churchill famously was basically, you know, from birth thought he was there to save the world. But um, most of us aren't born with it. Um, and it's something you discover over time. Yeah, Daniel, one of the things I appreciate most about you, especially uh, during our conversations, is just your ability to synthesize your ideas and your thinking in just, just a clear and concise way. And I mean, that's just an excellent framework for someone who, who doesn't have this experience. And I'm just wondering, some of the other main frameworks uh, and models that you found most helpful overall. Um, yeah, it's funny. I get I get a lot of the kind of mental model questions. Uh, you know, I I don't have them. I'm I'm a bit more of an uh, of a jazz improviser, um, a, a bad one probably um, than uh, a classical um, musician. You know, I don't have like the particular scripture I subscribe to. Um, I do think there are there are a bunch of you know uh, mental kind of tricks or fallacies that people fall into. There's plenty to be read about this online. You know, I think famously Charlie Munger has this book, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, which discusses this in quite length. And if you don't want to read the book or buy it, it's, it's actually a, an expensive book. Oddly, um, there's great summaries of it online. Um, but one that's been very topical for me of late with the, with coronavirus is just the law of exponents and exponential growth, you know, doubling every week. Again, it's it's super easy to talk about these numbers, but it they're real brain busters. Doubling every week seems very fine until you go from 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000 to 8,000 to 16,000 to 32,000. Um, and and uh, that that is, um, you know, it's funny, you ask for mental frameworks I use, but that's like a mental framework no one can really grasp their head around. One of the reasons why I actually think the Bay Area was a little bit more better prepared to the coronavirus than anywhere else is staring at exponential growth and dreaming of exponential growth in good forms is something we do all day. And so we work 
quite aware of, you know, well, it might be going from four to eight deaths, but if it's doubling every week, um, you know, I think we were quite aware of how bad it could get because those charts that those, the shape of those charts is, is very familiar to us. But I think most people don't understand that. Um, most people don't understand the math of compounding. Uh, I think that it's like a, that's another weird secret. Um, you know, it's, 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 you can really take, yeah, for whatever, for wherever you want to be in terms of revenue you have, how much money you have, how many users you have, you could take wherever, you know, whatever number that is and plug it into a spreadsheet and just set 5% growth as your target weekly. And it starts out really easy. Yeah. But if you manage to keep the pace, you get to large numbers very quickly. So that's another thing to flag for people. Um, uh, and, um, you were, you were mentioning you're more like a, a jazz musician. Uh, I'm wondering, have you ever read the book Effortless, Effortless Mastery? I've leafed through it. I, I wouldn't call it a red one, but yeah, I, I own it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, just talking about the the improvisation and, and how you go about things. It just seems similar to, to that framework. So I'm just wondering if you had, had checked that out at all. You, you did bring up a, an interesting thing, though, and, and understanding the limits of your knowledge and what you're not capable of. So... Are there certain things over the past year with with Pioneer you guys have come across, and we can call them just blind spots? Uh, and I'm wondering if, if you've changed anything, even at the margin, and what that process has looked like for you. Yes, um, constantly adjusting and learning. You know, I think the um, I think it's fairly um, imp- well. I think it's impossible for a mortal to build a product and have it be successful with literally no edits, you know, kind of headshot situation. Um, I think it's very possible for someone to build something that is directionally good and try to get feedback from customers. The only amount of goodness you need in your product is you need sufficient goodness so that people will use it so that they will give you feedback. Um, that is it. Um, and so thankfully we have that with Pioneer and so we get copious amounts of feedback. And, um, you know, one, one particular thing, you know, that, that uh, we improved on recently is, uh, uh, you know, people, I think, wanted a structured way to understand, you know, how they would get funding from Pioneer and our, our you know, our original um, uh, kind of fu- funding offer was just complicated and unspecific. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying to fix in the venture world is uh, negotiation, which I think no founder wants. Um because negotiating against a VC is, I think, flat out unfair. You're doing a negotiation for the fourth time probably in your life, and um, they are doing it for the fourth time, you know, this week. <laughs> so uh, it, it sucks. Um, no one wants to, um, you don't want to run your first marathon against Elliot Kipchoge. Um, so, you know, one thing we adjusted as a result is we we made our terms incredibly uh, transparent, clear, and it's, it's actually... Uh, we're, we're going to do, do a, another step of, of this soon. Um, but you could literally go to the website and, um, and, and you could see what our terms are. And we try to pretty much, we always stick to them. Um, and so like that, that was a big thing for us just because, um, you know, for, for me, removing confusion from the venture game is in, incredibly important. The ideal situation, we haven't quite arrived there yet. But of course, the ideal situation is, you know, you can envision like a Windows 98 UI where the, you know, get money button is grayed out. And then at some point it turns, you know, uh, black and you can click it and then you just get money. That's it. That should be obviously how this works. Um, it's like so clear when you think of it. But 
Um, there shouldn't be any of this weird kind of negotiation, talking to different people. The get money button should just turn the right color and you press it and you're done. Um, we'll get there. We're not quite there, but that's a big thing we've been working on. Another thing we're constantly working on is improving the elements of feedback in the tournament. So the way Pioneer works is you play this thing and you try to get some points and improve kind of your score week over week. And one of the things that drives your score is other people kind of commenting on the progress you made over the course of a particular week. And they have the ability to leave feedback for you. And I must say, you know, part of a lot of this is due to the, uh, you know, work that, um, the engineering team has done notably, uh, our, um, our star, uh, co-pilot Rishi. Um, and, um, a lot of it's, I think due to maybe community luck dynamics, but the feedback on pioneer is really good. And this is a big deal because as you know, on pseudonymous communities on the internet, people are rarely nice to each other. Um, but for some reason it works. And so just kind of improving the quality of the feedback um, in terms of, you know, how we show who and what is another really important thing for us because, you know, going back to your point about the coach, that nudge uh, where someone says, you know, hey, this was really good or even constructive criticism, you know, hey, have you considered X or Y is really important to people. Um, cause I think that can really make the difference of, you know, a good week and, um, and a bad week. One thing, so go ahead. Oh, no, no. One thing you brought up a little while ago that I should have dove deeper into now, but this is kind of circling back is you're mentioning the leaderboard. And I'd love to know how you assess this through when you're talking about certain people don't like being up on the leaderboard and they prefer to compete against themselves. So how do you balance that? Um, it's true. I take, we take, um, I mean, we can take a lot of inspiration from existing games uh, that, you know, have multiple modes. You can play in single player and play against yourself, or you could play in multiplayer with other people. Now, unlike a game, we have this interesting problem, which is the reason single player works is you can play against, let's imagine it's, you know, some type of strategy game or whatever. You can play against um, an AI. You can play against a computer and the computer can simulate people. And there's something very beautiful in that because the, the computer will never see you in, in your nakedness. You know, you could have a totally abysmal game and um, no one will know. Um, now, we don't have that. Like, um, we don't have, if we knew how to write software that would act like the way founders do, then we'd have a whole other business in front of us. Um, uh, so we don't know how to write software that runs businesses quite yet. Um, uh, and it may be some time before that happens. And so we don't have, doing single player for us is a little bit more difficult. Um, but one thing we can do is um, uh, that, that, that um, we're adding into our product is the ability to kind of see where you rank on the leaderboard without appearing to yourself, if you like, which is, which gives you a sense of kind of where you stand. Um, but again, it's, you know, um, not something you need to be public about. The other thing I should mention is there's a reason Pioneer is mostly pseudonyms and not real names. I mean, at some point we need to know people's names because we need to know where to send them money. Um, but you can go through the entire experience making up a fake username. No one will know who you are. Uh, and that is in many ways to afford people the ability to really experiment and be themselves without having to put profile pictures everywhere. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that, again, that allows you to compete against yourself without really worrying about the rest of the world. So... So, you know, I think both, but I think you're right. Both modes exist. And, and, and I think, um, uh, you know, we, we're, we're kind of working to serve both of them well.
Now, I appreciate so much you being willing to talk about some of the, the things you're, you're trying to change, overcome, and have dealt with, because so many times we get to look up to people like you, and it's almost like you were talking about, have been so coached in what to say. So it's just such a great perspective. And I know we received a lot of questions, just everyone with this uncertainty, they want to know what's going to change coming out of this. And you did an amazing blog post, which we'll have linked up uh, about the world 2.0. And I'm wondering for you guys internally, are you assessing things differently? Are there new opportunities you're looking at because of everything's around COVID? Well, I think the right strategy for us is as much as my blog posts actually try to be in the game of prediction, the right strategy for pioneers to react and not to predict. And so we're going to follow, you know, um, engineers and, and, and founders, you know, to wherever markets they think are interesting, uh, because, you know, I, I think once the spirit of human ingenuity um, manages to sink its teeth into a market, something happens at some point. Um, and it is true. Things have shifted a little bit. You know, life is seemingly a, there's a little bit less activity in people building kind of next generation SaaS and a little bit more activity in people building kind of new social networks, ways to stay connected at home, that type of thing. Um, I think this beckons an interesting question, which I tried to address in that post, which I've been thinking about which is Juan, um, like is COVID-19 um, a thesis for investment or is it temporary? Um, and two, uh, if, it's, if, if, if the current way of life isn't a thesis for investment because it will change, um, you know, what things are permanent and what things are temporary, just in terms of human behavior shifts. Um, and so to the first point, I think the current lifestyle is temporary, but I think the vaccine is very far away. And so we can kind of view ourselves in, um, social distancing purgatory for quite some time, where we're going to be in between worlds. Uh, and, and that will be for a while, you know, my information on this changes daily, you know, the, the time to a new vaccine, trying to speak to different experts and understand, you know, is it going to be a year or five years, but, uh, you know, call me tomorrow, but right now I'm sensing it'll be more like five years. Um, they don't all have the novel spike protein shape, but you know, let's not forget there are four other coronaviruses um, called the common cold that we don't have a vaccine for. So this it's not as easy as it seems. Um, it's you know, it's not like Fauci is gonna Dr. Fauci is gonna just pull this up because Trump asked him to, you know, from from his uh, dusty old cabinet where he's been hiding it. Um, so so in in this world, you know, what changes and what doesn't, and I think the way to think of that is. Um, so there are things we can't do. And if there's a, if, if not having them, or if there's an, if there's alternative to not having them, um, then the behavior might permanently stick. If not, a new company will get created. So I'll give you an example, handshakes, handshakes will go away because not doing handshakes is fine. You know, they're not a requirement for humans. They're, it's not oxygen. On the other side, concerts won't be here for quite some time. Humans really like mass gatherings. I mean, look at what religions have. You can go back thousands of years. We've been doing this for quite some time. It's not just a, the invention of Avicii. Um, and so as a result, I think there'll be some really interesting software to be built around kind of mimicking that experience of, of presence. Um, and, um, you know, the way it's going to look is this, I can tell you, I mean, this is the way this unfolds time and time again. Every time there's a new medium, the first few examples of it are super, super impositions of the old medium on the news. So just like the first TV shows, our cameras pointed at radio shows and the first mobile apps um, are, uh, you very much look like web apps, um, you know, and then someone builds 
in terms of TV shows, Westworld. And then someone built in terms of mobile apps, Uber. So it takes quite some time as we go from kind of the world 1.0 to the world 2.0 to get the, like, the real technology out of it. Um, you know, the first digital encyclopedias were not Wikipedia, it was Britannica on a CD. And so I think, you know, we'll get things like online concerts over Zoom. But then I think there'll be some weird 2.0 um, that someone will create of that. Education's another great example. School over Zoom is going to be the horseless carriage. It's not, and, and, and there's going to be something else. I don't know exactly what it'll be, you know, some element of a game and education all merged in one, where I suspect video is not the dominant medium. Audio is, not video. Um, something like that, I think, will get created because the alternative is just not as good. Um, so that's kind of my rough framework for thinking about this, but we're quite reactionary at Pioneer. You know, we'll follow whatever people build and, and um, chase, chase what other uh, dreams people have, help them maybe catch those dreams. Um, yeah, your, so, mode, your mode of thinking makes me think of that quote. It's, it's something along the lines of adapt to the present as opposed to trying to predict the future. Um, and so it sounds like that's, that's what you guys are working on. You mentioned some of the things that are just catching your attention or where you think things may be leading to. And I'd love to know, how do you think work and hiring changes during all of this? Yeah, I think the simplest mental model for that is um, a separation of the strong from the weak. Um, so I think what happens is if you're a good company that has a durable business model, um, I think uh, you basically eat up the best talent of the small companies that go under. So that's one way hiring changes. A lot of companies will go under and the best talent will concentrate within the better companies. Um, this will be painful, but actually not totally bad um, uh, because let's not forget um, you often need a recession for super talent to concentrate and for real great outcomes to happen. So PayPal was the combined might of Max Levchin, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, David Sachs, Keith Raboy, Roloff Botha, um, others, uh, Jeremy Stoppelman, who is the founder of Yelp. Um, all of these people would have had their own companies in a boom market, but in a bear market, you know, they all concentrate together. And I believe it was X.com and Confinity that merged to create PayPal. So I think we'll see stuff like that um, in terms of hiring. Uh, you know, in terms of how work changes, you know, there's, there's one side of the story, which people tell you, you know, humans are going to snap back to offices and it's all going to go back to normal. Um, even prior to having a vaccine, there's the other side of it, which is people will tell you remote's now here forever. And I think the truth will be somewhere in the middle, obviously. Um, I think companies will have proven to themselves, those that, those that can will have proven to themselves that they can stay productive remote. And so the opportunity to work remote, I think will go from being seen as a perk to being seen as an alternative. Uh, but, um, you know, but I think offices, there's just too much goodness in the real world for us to give up on that entirely. Do you think and I think in particular, just one final thought, a lot of that goodness is serendipity. And we don't know how to do that on the internet yet, but maybe we will. But there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of interestingness around serendipity of just being able to stumble into someone at the water cooler and have a conversation with them that you don't quite get in the structured, you know, Zoom world. 
I'm, I'm wondering then if this opens up more serendipity. Uh, I guess my, my mode of thinking there is if a company is trying to hire someone, they might now eliminate some of those additional costs in terms of flying people in, and, and they're more likely to hire someone who, who wouldn't move to that city. Do you think that opens up at all? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. Um, I think two, two things will drive that. One will be the fact that everyone is now fully experimented with remote work. And then I think the other is, um, you know, the cooling uh, winds of a recession will happen. And so I think people will be more sensitive to cost. Gotcha. One thing you're talking about is just now this talent coming. And something that I admire about you is just your ability to detect talent. And I'm wondering, when you're meeting, we'll call it a founder, what are your spidey senses going off when you come around someone who's incredibly talented? Are, are there certain things that you just see continue to pop up over and over again? You know, it's funny. Uh, this question in many ways has been one that um, has been in the back of my mind for a decade. And I think about it constantly. And I've spoken to other talent assessors about it um, endlessly. Uh, and you know, one day, maybe uh, if I'm brave enough, I'll, I'll, I'll write a book about it. Um, cause I think it's a very interesting topic and I, I feel like I'm still learning in this area. So I'm not quite ready for the, um, capstone project of a book, but, um, here's the thing. I mean, having gone back and forth on psychometrics, I've read every single paper there is on that stuff. Uh, having gone back and forth on, you know, the role of IQ and intellect, read most papers uh, on that material, um, there's something that's not captured by any of these frameworks, which I think is much more important, which is kind of just the raw energy and vitality you get from someone. And I think I'd much rather take a bet on someone who had, who will be able to play a thousand chess games than take a bet on someone who seems like they have merely the energy to play one. And, but, you know, statistically, maybe they have high odds of winning that one game. The reason is there's so much randomness in what is required to, to kind of become successful. The, the, the game has many more layers of dimensionality than, than chess does. Um, you really want someone who's just going to have the energy to take multiple shots on goal until they succeed. Um, and, um, and that's the big thing to focus on. If like the world is a simulation game, you want someone who you can say, no matter what they do, no matter what the initial parameters are, if you ran the simulation 10,000 times, they'll probably come up just constantly giving it a shot and, uh, you know, on, on, on their feet, um, you know, a relatively high percentage of the times. Um, I think that is the big thing to look for. Uh, you know, Paul Graham talks about being looking, f- f- wanting to feel intimidated while he's in the room with the other founder, that being the emotion he seeks. Um, I think that that's kind of related to this form of energy. Um, if the person is dynamic, if the person is driven, if the person believes, um, then, then I think they become very interesting. And I think that matters more than, um, raw intellect. And I think that matters more than any particular psychometric attribute. Um, so, so I would say, you know, mostly that's, that's what's on my mind. Um, and I'm surprised, I'm surprised because what I'm talking about seems pretty plain. Um, and it seems like a lot, or if all people should have it, but it's certainly not the case. Um, and I think even at an early level, you can look at someone who's not even certain about what they're working on, but if they have the energy, they will succeed. You've got me really intrigued now by a problem that you haven't solved yet. 
And I almost view this as a creative type process for you trying to uncover that. And I'm just really intrigued about your overall creative process. It's something I've never heard you talk about before. So, so when you have a new idea like that, you can even just call it something you, you want to do a blog post around. What's your creative process like? It seems like you may do multiple thought experiments and run scenarios through your head. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I've been thinking about with with all of this is um, when you want to start writing something down, I find, and I think this is true for many people, the idea jumbles around in my head like a rock tumbler, refining, 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 refining until I start writing it down. And then once I started writing it down, there's like a pressure release. It's like a like a pressure cooker that um, has, you know, is, is letting off steam and it, and it tumbles around my head a little bit less. So there's a little bit of a counterintuitive crazy idea that works well for me. Um, and I've had, I've spoken to people that have the opposite strategy, but mine is to, to let it jumble around in my head until I'm kind of, I feel like I'm ready. Um, and then I, I, and then once I write, I usually write it, you know, once fairly quickly and kind of get it out the door. Um, I, while the topic is kind of germinating uh, or, or hopefully refining, I'll definitely talk about it with other people and, um, and think about it. But I find, um, you know, I don't exactly know what it is, but at, at some point I think my mind feel like the task has been done if I start writing and, um, and the idea has kind of left my mind. And so, um, you know, <laughs> I'm realizing this, as I tell you, my creative process quite chaotic in that sense, uh, that I will let something just jumble around endlessly, let the idea jumble around endlessly uh, until um, until I feel like it's gotten to a point where it's worthwhile. Yeah, that rumination process is always one that intrigues me. Uh, I'm wondering, though, when, when something's been, been germinating in your head and you decide to take next steps, how do you decide on it's something that's going to be worth the next steps for you? I don't really, and I never know. Um I never know, you know, it's, uh, this is kind of what I, I'm trying to convey to people at scale, but I, I never really know. I'm, and I'm often surprised. You get to even the, the surface area of just writing posts on the internet. Um, I'm a very bad predictor at which post will be popular. And it's certainly not correlated to um, the time I spend on it. You know, sometimes people really seem to enjoy something that took me 20 minutes to write and no one seems to care about the thing that I spent hours thinking about. Um, and so as a result, I, I, I don't overthink it too much. Um, and I think I write a lot of things in, where in hindsight, of course, as I read them, the um, my, my dynamic is just wondering why I even bothered publishing such a terrible idea. Um, um, but I think that's just my own psyche. Uh, uh, but I think it's important not, not to really overthink it and to try to get out there. There is this psychometric property of industriousness people talk about, um, which is not, you know, um, uh, really, an assessment on, say, the quality or the um, how would you say the the finesse of anyone's work, but just their raw output. Uh, and you know, someone high in industriousness will just have raw, high raw output. They'll just be producing a lot, um, often not even aware of why or how or how much they're producing. They're just doing it, kind of on autopilot. And I, th I think that's an interesting thing to shoot for because, again, I think you know whether it's a company, a blog post. Um, you know, a piece of music, I don't know that you know when it's so small, whether it's going to be good or not. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it's useful to, um, to to kind of just get something out there and then try to get feedback and then 
you know, show it to customers uh, in many ways or, um, earlier rather than later. And and the process of showing it to customers is not always pleasant, um, but but that's fine. It, it kind of makes you better. It's not always pleasant, of course, because then you know and you worry in the back of your mind that, you know, they're not going to love it. Um, so I understand, you know, the quote, great artistship. Um, it's, it, it takes a certain element of um, fearlessness to do that. Um, yeah. Putting yourself out there is never easy. You're talking about all, all of these things that you might not necessarily know the answer to. And I'm hoping you might have an answer to this one. Uh, just in what area of your life do you think you have the best taste for? Oh, um, that's a fun question. I think I have a pretty good uh, well, I can tell you, it's certainly not in in um, in uh, wine um, or um, fashion, but I have a I think I have a pretty good taste for um, you know, uh, kind of general markets. Um, and I don't think it's it's that much of an achievement. It's just you look at stuff enough, you kind of develop um, a, a sense for it. And Beckins, of course, an interesting question, which is does great taste often mean that you're the worst person to talk to about a certain topic? Because you know, taste in many ways is just kind of pattern recognition. And so I think I can pattern recognize a, a great market and a bad market, but the world is so volatile. You know, maybe for example, I'll miss the next great healthcare company because that's just generally a bad market. Um, it's kind of an interesting question whether, um, well, what is the correct amount of taste? Um, and, and, and maybe there are areas where you have kind of too much taste in. Because um, there's a, a bit of an explore, exploit thing going on, I think, where you collect more information about a certain field. Uh, and then you become trapped. Um, I mean, this happens to machine learning algorithms all the time. You become trapped in kind of a local maxima. Um, uh, and, and, and you miss the fact that, you know, had you been a little bit more explorative, you know, two spaces to your left has, is, a, is a much higher hill or peak. Um, so I think it's a very interesting question um, to think about maybe over the weekend. I wouldn't spend too, too, too many hours cycling through this on a, on a Thursday, but um, as, to, as to what the correct amount of taste is. Um, but it's, it's clear to me that the, the kind of dose response curve there is kind of an inverse u-shape where you want some amount of it but not all of it no i love how you reframe that now you have me thinking through this differently because when i asked the question i'm always intrigued next about is do you work in that area and then kind of like why or why not so i like how you reshifted that for me what about just in, in terms of you you've been around a lot of people you you've self-assessed a lot what are most people just not paying attention to? What are they did? You think they would just dramatically increase their overall success in life and life happiness and define that how you may? I think people are not, I mean, I found myself, I think there's a, so, so there's a strong desire now, I think from the entire world to kind of get um, very much focused. I don't know on, uh, on, you know, taking care of yourself and, you know, trying to be mindful and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like that is, you know, grossly overrated in comparison to managing the inputs in your life. You know, the people you're surrounded by, the food you eat, the information that you read. Um, I think it's much easier to just try to optimize those things uh, instead of trying to optimize what your brain does with everything you throw at it, if that makes sense. Um, like, I think if you have bad voltage, you know, in, in your, uh, in terms of what you plug yourself into, uh, I think you'll have, you know, spiky output, uh, you know, you don't want to try to assume that you're going to have a, you know, transformer in your body. Um, 
So I feel like that's a pretty large underrated thing. And of course, beckons the question where like, you know, how do you change those inputs if you don't really have control over them? If you're kind of just stuck somewhere. The good news is the internet is this vast equalizing landscape. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. My internet is the same as a billionaire's internet, which is the same as the internet of someone in India right now. It's for the most part, pretty identical. Sure, maybe slightly faster upload speeds, whatever. But for the most part, it's the same. And that's really beautiful. That means you can kind of get in touch with anyone, find a community for yourself. And I think that's the, that's a that's a very big thing to pay attention to. You know, we we are the average of the people we spend time with. And you want to figure out ways to spend time with great people to increase your average. Um, so I think that's a pretty big thing. Um, I think, um, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I think this, the whole debate on, um, on kind of, in my, and this is a little bit controversial, but the whole mental health debate, I think pales in comparison to say the debate around proper sleep. And I often wonder how many hours of headspace or meditation you accomplish in literally an hour of REM sleep. Um, and I think a lot of people early on in life have a strong desire to perform through output. Um, that is to say they want to be seen as cycling the bicycle as aggressively as possible. Um, but the world really doesn't care, sorry, about uh, input. The world really doesn't care about, you know, how, how much effort you put in. The world really cares about how much output you have. Um, and you and you want to be working hard and smart, you know, not just hard. Yeah, so I, I've got a question around that. And then, so I'm, I'm really curious then how you spend the majority of your time and what are you using as barometer for your return on that invested time? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I spend the majority of my time uh, working and interfacing with, you know, pioneers, founders, people with, you know, early stage companies working on Pioneer itself, of course, just trying to figure out what to improve, what to fix. Um, we just launched this new thing called Frontier, um, which is kind of like a an interesting directory of um, cool projects uh, kind of built online. It kind of takes the shape of a subreddit. Um, so, you know, thinking about that, working through that, how to, how to make it grow, how to make it popular, how to also make sure that it, you know, has a, a kind of a good community driving behind it, uh, is something that's top of mind for me. Um, and, um, you know, the, the way I view the return on time there is, uh, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty chaotic in the sense that we have metrics we look at for, say, the company uh, of Pioneer, you know, the, the people we're funding, the quality of the people we're funding, or other people funding the people that we're funding, that type of thing. Um, the kind of obvious stuff you would be looking at, I think, if, if you were in the organization. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and for me personally, so much of my personal, you know, kind of personal and social capital is equitized in that thing. I spent a lot of time I mean, if that were successful, I, I would be happily successful. Um, but I think the other thing that's important is, you know, even outside of the main game, you know, just being helpful to close friends, being helpful to family, um, other people perceiving you as useful, I think is the, is the main thing I, I like. And I feel like I often need, maybe it's a flaw of mine to be dependent on. Um, and so, you know, uh, for, for, for me, being able to produce something that other people find worthwhile, that other people find useful, um, you know, be that an email, a piece of software, um, anything really, uh, that, that, that for me is joy. Well, to be honest, you're certainly checking the box there for me. You've been incredibly helpful uh, over the last year with your, with your writing conversations, just overall lessons learned. So thanks for that. Uh, I, I know you've got a lot going on today, so I just kind of want to finish up with, with two quick ones here. 
And if we're just going to be sitting down having this conversation in three years from now, what do you need to have, have happened that you just feel overall happy with the progress of Pioneer and yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, success for us and success for, for, uh, for Pioneer is to be, we want to be equity holders in hundreds of great businesses that, uh, are obviously valued as great themselves. Um, uh, you know, I think if, if the aggregate market cap of, uh, of pioneer companies was a hundred billion dollars, we would consider ourselves certainly on the, on, on the path to success. And like I said, I think the world could stand to have significantly more small companies, you know, in trade of, you know, four or five large tech giants. Uh, and so if we could help increase the amount of variety, uh, the amount of kind of uh, novelty in the world that way, uh, I think, I think we'd be hugely successful. So that's the trick for us. You know, it's, it's not about having a billion users. Pioneer is not really a tool for the masses. It's a tool for the elite, for the top 1% um, that don't even realize they're the 1%. Um, this isn't, you know, the, the net worth 1%. This is kind of the weird 1%. Um, the outsiders, the top 1% outsiders. If we can find a way to find those limited number of people, um, and to be clear, I think there are millions of them, but again, not billions, and get be at the ground floor as they start their business uh, and um, propel them into success. Uh, you know, I think, I, th I think we'd feel pretty happy with our tombstone. So that's the main thing we're shooting for is kind of being equity holders in hundreds of successful businesses doing a, you know, a whole eclectic mix of things. Uh, Daniel, I love it. It's inspiring. It's truly great work that you guys are helping so many people across the globe. So final one here. Uh, I'm always intrigued about what's coming through your, your brain in terms of what you're reading and then who your just favorite thinkers of all time are. I know you've mentioned Churchill a few times in this conversation. Would you just love to get most updated new books or things that you've enjoyed reading and then who you just admire as a thinker? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there is actually a new Churchill book that came out this year. Um, uh, so that, that's been an enjoyable one to read. Um, um, there's a really great book. I, I only would recommend it to someone who runs. Um, it's an old book, but it's a really great book, possibly the greatest running book of all time. Um, uh, let's see if I can pull up the name here. You know, it's funny, a byproduct of reading on Kindle is... I'm less familiar with the title of things. I, I had that question. Just, Someone yeah. asked me that last night and I couldn't remember probably five of the last 10 based on that. <laughs> uh, so the book is called Once a Runner uh, and it's really good um, if, if you're into running. Um, if you're not, um, you know, an, uh, Wedding of the Waters uh, was a book that was recommended to me is about the construction of the Erie Canal. I found that incredibly fascinating. Um one that um, I'm just finishing now that I picked up recently is, is uh, a book titled Chaos. Um, this is the Charles Manson book. Um, you know, it's, well, it's if, 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 if you like the intellectual thrill of a conspiracy theory, I think it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I don't know how knowledgeable uh, or how informational it is. Um, just finishing uh, Robert Caro's latest on Lyndon Johnson. That's, that's a kind of an endless saga. You can start reading that and you'd never. Yeah, the really that monstrosity. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a bit of a capstone project. Um, maybe one final one I'd recommend I kind of really enjoyed was Cokeland, um, the secret history of the uh, quote unquote secret history of Coke Industries. I found that very interesting. Um, uh, book paints a mixed picture. 
Um, and I think that's important. Um, I think it, it would have been very easy for the author to write the negative story, um, but it's mixed, positive and negative. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, so I, that was interesting. Maybe two, I mean, sorry, you've now tripped me. Um, the Man Who Solved the Market, I thought was super fascinating. This is a book about Jim Simons and um, Renaissance technologies. It's a very interesting um, book about, about the company. Uh, and then... Um, Maybe one final one is uh, Leadership and War, Andrew Roberts' book. Andrew Roberts has written a tremendous amount of biographies about leaders, um, including Churchill. This one is kind of, uh, how would you say, snippets of uh, areas of leadership, you know, from different um, leaders around the world. So it's kind of a compressed way of reading his book. Some of the chapters are great. Some of the chapters are bad. I'd encourage the reader to kind of leaf through it um, in non-sequential order. To, from you know, you know whatever they find most interesting it's funny you and i must be thinking through the same lens because those last three Copeland, uh did a deep dive on him reading roberts right now and then jim simons we had on the author greg zuckerman uh about a month or two ago but those first few i'd never heard of so i'm pumped to dive into those great awesome well great. daniel this is always fun I, I always walk away from these conversations thinking differently for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, everything that's going on at Pioneer, we're going to have it all linked up. But anywhere else you want them checking out, staying connected with you? No, that's great. I mean, my email is on my Twitter bio, so you should feel free to um, email me. Um, and uh, that's kind of it. I mean, I, people, I think I think if, if you feel like you shouldn't check out Pioneer, uh, that is the exact type of person that should check out Pioneer. Um, so give it a gander and... Um, we're of course always very curious about the the experience people go through, um, not just learning about what they're working on. So um, please send any feedback uh, you have our way. Yeah, highly recommend you guys checking out. It's fascinating, and all of you builders out there, make sure you guys get on there and 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 see if you can get some funding through Pioneer. But Daniel Gross, once again, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.